Please turn in your Bibles to Genesis 32. Genesis 32. Genesis 32 and verse 1. Jacob went on his way and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants and female servants. I have sent to tell my lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking if Esau comes to one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I'm not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude." So he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, Pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, When Esau, my brother, meets you and asks... To whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, They belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, Moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. The same night he arose and took took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had, and Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint, and he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob said to him, Please tell me your name. But he said, what is it? why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. 
The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us. We pray that you would take it and plant it deeply within our hearts. Help us, Lord, to see and to understand. Give us growth and grace according to your will. Holy Spirit, work in us and do that which only you can do. Give us ears to hear, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Sinu, sinu, I don't even know how to pronounce it this morning, so that's okay. Well, as we come in through this unfolding story, you know, these chapters are one kind of continuous story. Uh, we, we know what's coming. As Jacob heads back, you, you don't have to even read ahead in Genesis to know that as he leaves Padan Aram and heads back to Canaan, as God has instructed him to do, to head back home, you know what's facing him. <laughs> Esau's there, right? And, and you think of, of Jacob, what he did to Esau, yeah, it's been 20 years, but for what he did to him, 20 years is nothing. The older I get, the more I realize that 20 years isn't what it used to be. And so Jacob's quite aware of this. Now, if I were in Jacob's place, I might think of uh, a different route, maybe, to avoid this awkward situation, this difficult confrontation. Most of us like to avoid confrontation if possible. It's not something that the majority of us want to pursue, either confronting a difficult situation or confronting a person. And so we might wonder why Jacob didn't take the long way around or just didn't avoid Edom completely. You know, to, to maybe he, he could sneak in and not see Esau right away. But in the text that's before us today, we see this unfolding image of Jacob that is a person being transformed by grace. If we think back to the Jacob we were introduced to in chapter 25, and we look at the Jacob that is before us today in chapter 32, it really is two different people. Jacob has truly been and is being transformed, and this is something that gives us hope. Just a few observations. Jacob doesn't avoid his brother. I mean, he goes right in, right away, straight shot to, 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 to see. You know, he's, he set it all up. He's got a plan in place, but he's going to see his brother. And even though he's anxious, when he hears about his brother coming out, I think Moses' ability to narrate this story shows how great of a storyteller he is. Because you get the tension that builds. You know, the, the messengers come back and they say, yeah, your brother's coming. And he's got 400 men with him. No extra details like Esau's coming and he's really chill or he didn't really look upset. I mean, there's no additional detail. It's just your, your brother Esau's coming and he's got 400 men with him. I mean, even in the way that the story unfolds at the end where it, it starts out, a man came and wrestled with him, and you think, who is this? And then by the end of the story, you're told, oh, it was God. <laughs> God in human form came and wrestled with Jacob. And so Moses' ability to string these things together, like this part of the story with, here comes 400 men. Yeah, Jacob was afraid. This text says he was distressed. But we see that he wasn't overcome with fear. Jacob also has this, uh, we see this maturity in him and how he approaches the sin against his brother. He sinned against his brother in a number of ways. 
lying, cheating, took, taking the birthright, even though it had been promised to him, uh, God could quite have effectively given him the birthright without him taking it from him. And so the offense is real. And so Jacob's maturity in not only going directly to his brother, but sending these gifts ahead of him. And, and these gifts were, I mean, we read it, right? That's a lot of animals. That's a lot of wealth. And so Jacob is communicating to his brother through this that this is how much uh, this uh, restitution means to me, that I'm willing to give you these things. So we see that maturity there. But most importantly, we see Jacob's faith, specifically in the prayer and how he goes to God in prayer that's recorded in verses 9 to 12. Uh, This is how we're to face uncertainty. This is how we are to face trouble as we look at how Jacob does so in prayer. There's more than this; those four things, but those four things alone help us to see that God is transforming the man Jacob into a new person. And we also get a picture of that as well. He gets a new name. His name is changed to Israel. But as is often the case when we look at God's gracious work in the, in the lives of people in Scripture, as we read narratives like this, it's easy because we're all little legalists. It's easy for us to look at this and say, I want to be like Jacob. Or that's what Pastor Seth said today was be like Jacob. Um, we, we have to be careful of this when we come to this. The, the Bible's message is quite consistent. And there's a number of ways that we can summarize the Bible's message. But one of the simplest ways that we can summarize the whole message of the Bible is God saves sinners. Uh, you know, we have other ways of, of, of painting the picture, creation, fall, redemption, redemption, consummation, that shows the overarching story of Scripture. It is the message of grace. It is the good news that Jesus has come to pay for our sins, what we couldn't pay for ourselves, that while we were enemies at God, with God, while we were at odds with God, Jesus came and atoned for our sins. And so that is what the emphasis is of this text and all texts, that the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as we read this morning, of one substance, power, and eternity, is at work demonstrating His gracious redemption of His people. And so our marveling isn't at Jacob, but at the God of Jacob. So as we come to any narrative and we look, and we can say God is transforming Jacob's life, and we can say that that prayer is a great example to follow and, you know, kind of way to go, Jacob. But we don't stop there. That's not where we want to go. We want to look to the God of Jacob, who is the one working in Jacob's life to make him who he is, to transform his life, to save him, just as we marvel at God's saving work in our own lives. When we testify, behold, the old has passed away and the new has come. And so as we open up the first uh, verses here in the chapter, we see, once again, the angels of God visiting Jacob, just as they had done on other occasions, such as the staircase, demonstrating God's presence with him in the journey. Now, there's not a lot of detail given, and you almost might miss it when you read it. It's the, The angels visited him, and then the text just goes on. It doesn't say what they did. It doesn't say why they came. But God's angels sent to him were doing the same thing that they had done all along, encouraging Jacob in the journey. And you can understand why Jacob needed the encouragement. Think about what he is, what, he, what he's going to face. Of course, God knew all of this. It wasn't just that this was going to be a difficult journey. Uh, Jacob, if you think about his history in Canaan, it wasn't a very good history. 
And so he had gone on. He had, I mean, he was, he was a different person. And now he's coming back and he has to face the history that he left behind. And so the desire there in any of us would be to do what? Let's run. Let's go the other way. There's plenty of land around here. Let's find a different place to live. And so God knew that Jacob needed this encouragement. He sends his messengers to him to minister to him. And Jacob acknowledges God's presence with him. He names the place God's camp. And then he sends out these messengers to greet Esau before he arrives. And we notice his intention is both to demonstrate with the gifts and also to communicate through the messengers that he might find favor in your sight is what he sent. That's the message he sent with the messengers we read in verse 5. He wanted to find favor in Esau's sight. Now, the word for angels and the word for, well, it's the same word used for messengers. So God's messengers came and ministered to Jacob, and now Jacob's messengers are being sent out to accomplish this task. Jacob not only wants to send the message that he is coming uh, to, to see Esau, but he also wants to get a read on the situation. I mean, that's exactly what the messengers do when they come back. They tell him, they give him a read on the situation. Unfortunately, at least not in the, in the text, they don't tell him any other additional information. I would have wanted some other information. What did his face look like? Did he say anything? Did he do anything? But it didn't matter because Esau was coming with 400 men, and that communicated quite clearly, at least to Jacob, what he was about to face. And so Jacob is understandably, as verse 7 says, greatly afraid and distressed. Jacob's human. Does, has he stopped trusting God? No, we're going to see that. But he is afraid. And this is, this is comforting to us because we're facing times where we realize our humanity, where fear and anxiety can creep into our hearts and we are afraid. If it's not the pandemic, it's something else. You know, it could be the next hurricane that comes where we are faced with fear. Who of us wouldn't be scared? If you had done what Jacob had done to Esau and Esau was on his way with 400 men, you would be distressed too. Not only can we understand his fear and distress, but we can also understand why he took action. We see in verses 7 to 8, he divides the camp into two people, or two, two camp, the people into two camps, the flocks and the people. And this, this wasn't sinful. This wasn't him taking matters into his own hands. You know, sometimes we, uh, I mean, God had not forbidden him from doing this. And we're going to see further in the text that he is clearly trusting God. But trusting God doesn't mean that we don't live our lives, that we don't take steps, that we don't live wisely, that we don't make decisions or take action. I know there's a common phrase that uh, some people like to use, let go and let God. And I think what uh, most, at least if Presbyterians say it, hopefully what they mean by that is, uh, don't try and control things because God's in control. I'm, I'm going to assume the best that that's what people mean. But words mean something. And what that phrase is really saying is almost this kind of fateful, just let go and let God. I'm not going to do anything until God moves. But God did not create us as inanimate robots, right? He made us as creatures to, he's, he's, he's made us in his image. We're able to make decisions. We're able to live wisely. And so even as we think about a hurricane coming, uh, I'm not a prophet, so don't worry. I don't have any ideas of anything coming. I'm just using this as an example because we're in Florida. But um, we think of a hurricane coming, we pray and we trust God, don't we? But we also buy water and put up storm shutters. 
Right? We take action. And so there's nothing sinful in doing this. In fact, we could say Jacob acted wisely in dividing this, that, hey, if Esau comes and attacks, at least one or half of, of, of the flocks and the people can escape. And then we see Jacob uh, go to God in prayer. And this is really the uh, one of the most beautiful parts of this entire chapter. We apply wisdom most wisely when we do so in faith. We apply wisdom most wisely when we do so in faith. Now, that may seem silly to say that, but we can attempt to apply wisdom, biblical wisdom, apart from faith. And when we do that, we are functioning moralists, right? We're just taking uh, good, good teachings and trying to put them into our life to make life work. But that's not what we've been saved to. That's not what we've been called to. We have been called to live in relationship with God by faith. And so as any of us know who have ever tried to do this very long, this often ends in frustration. Why? Because without faith, it's impossible to please God. Without faith, we are detached from the power that is ours by the Holy Spirit. We're doing things in our own strength. And so we, even in our striving to obey, even in our effort to, in our effort to please God, our walk is one of faith. We are dependent on God. And so everything must do, must be done through the exercise of faith. Jacob does that in one of the primary ways that we exercise our faith through prayer. Look at that prayer in verse 9. O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I'm not worthy of the least of all the deeds and steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan and now have come become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude." So Jacob begins in his prayer addressing God, and it's this, uh, you know, we looked at the, the Heidelberg Confession of Faith, what, what belongs to a prayer which pleases God and is heard by him. We answered those questions this morning. We see that pattern here in this text. First of all, Jacob addresses God for who he is. He comes to God on God's terms, not on his own terms. Again, this may seem something that is so basic, but I know many Christians who that's what their prayers become. They, they begin to shape God in their own image. Rather than coming to God for who He is or praying to God according to His will, they bring their own idea of who God is. They bring their own will into the equation. But Jacob demonstrates he's coming to God based on who he is. He addresses him as the God of my fathers. And then he recalls the promises, promises of God. He, he says this one promise twice, that I may do you good. And you kind of wonder if Jacob is reminding himself or reminding God or a little bit of both here. God, Esau's coming with 400 men. Remember, you, you promised to do me good, right? He's, he's coming with 400 men. Remember, you promised to do me good. And so he is reminding both himself and God. He humbles himself before God. I'm not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. This is, um, this is a, a, a demonstration of a posture of humility. It's one of the things, too, that we read, that we have to come before God. He is, he is, this is not a, a sanctimony. He's not faking it. This is Jacob knowingly coming before God 
for who he is. This is the same image we see when Jesus speaks of the tax collector in Luke 18, who would not even look up to heaven, but beat his chest and said, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. And of course, that was in comparison to the Pharisee who spoke really more to the people who could hear than he was praying to God, announcing all of the great things that he had done. So the posture of prayer is the posture of humility. It isn't that these words, have mercy upon me, a sinner, are magic words, like if you say them as a formula, but they rather describe the attitude, the posture by which we come before God. And so then Jacob, after humbling himself before God, then lays his request before him, and it's very specific. God, deliver me from Esau. Deliver me from my brother. I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. Jacob's doing two things here. One is he's laying his request out. He wants protection, but he's also recalling the covenant. He's praying according to the promises of God. This is something that we should put into practice. He says, uh, the mothers with the children. Why does he put that phrase in there? Well, it's explained in the, in the, the sentence that follows. It's, God, you've promised to do me good. You've promised to make my descendants as numerous as the sands on the seashore. You have promised to bless the entire world through my line. If you don't protect the mothers with the children, that can't happen. He's reminding God, in a sense, of his covenant promise here. And and the sentence goes on, but you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring. There it is again. I will surely do you good. Make your offsprings the sand of the sea. And so this is how, this has to take place. Jacob is reminding himself and he's reminding God. So we pray according to the promises of God. It's not that God needs to be reminded Let me just make that clear. God is omniscient. He doesn't need to be reminded. We're not doing God any favors by reminding him. But I think God is pleased when we know his promises and and pray according to his promises. Because what his promises do for us, his promises don't change. He's God. But his promises change us. They reorient us. They bring us back into alignment. They remind us of what is true. But they not only remind us of what is true, that there's content or facts... But the praying according to the promises also reorients our relationship. In other words, we're reminded that we're in relationship, that this isn't, as we said earlier, we're not just following moral teachings. We are in relationship by faith with the God of the universe. And so this triune God who has sought us out and made us his own has brought us into this relationship through which it is multidimensional. It is dynamic. It's not static. We're not just following a rule book, but we are walking with our Lord and Savior. And so praying the promises of God magnifies the beauty of the one who has saved us and puts the beauty of Christ on display for others to see. Well, following his prayer, then Jacob also enacts a plan. And his while his prayer demonstrated that his faith was in God, the plan still serves an important purpose, right? Uh, there's wisdom in the plan that he uh, both divides the camps as well as he sends these uh, uh, all these gifts ahead. Uh, there's there's a there's a cue for us even how we seek restitution. If you have ever, uh, I mean, we don't send animals typically when we've wronged somebody, but there are versions of this that we do, right? If you go and apologize to someone and say. I'm sorry, 
but you made me mad. <laughs> How does that work? <laughs> uh, it doesn't go very far, does it? What is an apology that is effective? An apology that is effective is an apology like this. It's lavish. Just as in J- Jacob sent the gifts ahead, it's the apology that owns the wrong. I'm sorry I was wrong. Period. Not, you had a part in this too. You know, I was 90% wrong, but you were 10% wrong. It's not shifting the blame. It's not sharing the blame. It's owning the blame. So take her cue here from Jacob's apology. It was, apology was lavish and demonstrated to Esau his sincerity that he was truly, truly sorry. But again, we have to be careful because the little legalist, and maybe it's just me. I know I keep, I always harp on this, the, the little legalist. Maybe you guys don't struggle with this, but when I go through text, I end up trying to look for what it is I've got to do rather than looking at the one who is at work, the gracious one at work. And so when I come to this, I start looking at how Jacob did this, and that's a good, that's good wise counsel to follow, or now he puts this plan into place, and we have to be careful to remind ourselves, Jacob's plan did not save him. I don't want to give away how the story ends next week, but I'll just go ahead and tell you, Esau doesn't attack. Esau doesn't kill Jacob. But it wasn't Jacob's shrewdness that saved him. It was Jacob's God who saved him. And again, that's the importance that we, that we have to focus on. The important lesson for Jacob and the important lesson for us is going to be taught to him through this experience and the one that follows in this life-altering event that happens over the course of this night. God was going to show Jacob that Esau was not the one that he needed to fear. God was going to show Jacob that Esau was not the one that he needed to fear. Esau was not the one that he needed to be saved from. That was not where Jacob's concern needed to be. And God would do this not through a vision or a dream, but through a real visit, a real physical, kind, and gracious assault. Yes, God assaults Jacob. Make no mistake about this event. It wasn't a vision. It wasn't a dream. It wasn't simply Jacob wrestling with God the way we speak about it in a spiritual sense when we when we sort through things or sift through things as we read Scripture or pray. This was not what was happening with Jacob here. This was a real physical event, and we see it because there's a real physical effect, a reminder of this event that Jacob would live with the rest of his life. As I've mentioned, the narrator doesn't tell us it's God right from the beginning. He just says, a man, a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. It's, uh, it's part of Moses' great storytelling, right? It keeps us into the story and, and understanding, uh, wanting to, to understand what's happening next. There's some interesting things, though, to consider about this event. I mean, what, remember how distressed Jacob was. I mean, Esau's coming with 400 men. He's already on edge. God doesn't send him an invitation for a wrestling match. He shows up in the dark. Not in the dark that we know of with all the ambient light and electricity that we have. We're talking Palestinian desert dark way long ago before electricity was invented. And he comes in, I mean, you you can almost imagine him just pummeling Jacob. And Jacob jumps up and they're in this match. He doesn't know who he's wrestling with. He can't see. He doesn't know what's going on. There's no explanation given. It's just, it's just this attack. 
And Jacob is wrestling and wrestling, and it says until dawn. So whenever this started, it happened for a long time. But the thing that I find most surprising is in verse 25, when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob. Wait, I thought this was God who was wrestling Jacob. What do you mean he doesn't prevail against Jacob? You know, it, this, this must not be God. Maybe we've misunderstood. This, this can't be who it is. God's omnipotent. It doesn't make sense. Unless we think of what it was like to be four years old and wrestle with your dad. Right? You fathers, you know what it's like to wrestle with your four-year-old. You pretend that you're showing and using all of your strength, and your four-year-old believes that you're using all of your strength. And you let your four-year-old flip you over and pin you down. I mean, you're doing all the work, but not your four-year-old doesn't understand that. Your four-year-old thinks they're doing all of the work. And in that moment of sitting on your chest thinking that they defeated you, I think it's more of a picture of that that was really happening here. It wasn't that God couldn't defeat Jacob. It's that God didn't defeat Jacob. We see in this Jacob's persistence. He doesn't cry uncle. He doesn't give up. He kept on even after the match is over. I will not go go unless you bless me in verse 26. But to teach Jacob who he was wrestling with, God does something to demonstrate his power. And it says with just a touch, he touched his hip socket and put it out of place. It was, of course, effortless for the one who created all things and holds all things in his hands. And now for the rest of Jacob's life, he's going to walk with a limp that will remind him who he is to fear. Esau is not his concern, nor is any other person. This is not the work of a mean father. This is the work of a good father. This is not the assault of unkindness or hatred. This is the assault of grace because God is holy. He is above all else. When we reduce God into our own image or we create in our heads this grandfather figure type person who shows up and doles out treats and coins when he visits, we fail to get anywhere close to who God really is. Our God is a consuming fire, Hebrews tells us. He is fierce. He is the Lion of Judah. He is glorious. He is holy, holy, holy. Isaiah 6, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Above Him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two He covered His face, and with two He covered His feet, and with two He flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of Him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Because God is who He is, beautiful, awesome, beyond compare, glorious, magnificent, we should not reduce Him to a buddy who would show up at a campfire for an evening chat. God assaults Jacob in this match to demonstrate to him His glory who He is. And because of this, we can say that it was an assault of grace. For God to let Jacob go on thinking that he was capable of handling life on his own would not have been kind. For God to let Jacob go on thinking that Esau or anyone else was someone to fear would not have been loving. 
For God to let Jacob go on thinking that his shrewdness, his physical strength, or his wealth could provide for him in life would not have been gracious. No, the gracious, loving, and kind thing for God to do to Jacob was to show him that he is God and Jacob is not. That's why this was an assault of grace. And that's what you and I need to realize every day. Because nearly every moment of every day we are in this battle where we are fighting to be our own little gods, to be the captain of our own destinies, to do things our way. I mean, that's what's celebrated in our culture. That's the message that we're inundated with. Love yourself. Be true to yourself. You don't need help from anyone else. But God shows us that we are poor and needy, unable to control the weather, our own health, the decisions of others, world affairs, the destiny of our children, or even preserve our own lives from a pandemic, a car crash, or a heart attack. We are but dust. And as the grass springs up, and withers in the sun, so are our lives. Reality assaults us with these truths, but offers no hope. God assaults us with grace and shows us that He is our help and our salvation. He tells us, come to me and find rest in Matthew 11. He says, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other, Isaiah 45. He encourages us, for I will satisfy the weary soul, and every languishing soul I will replenish, Jeremiah 31. Our God, who exists in unapproachable light, who is high above all, glorious and holy, is also the God who pours out His grace on us, as He did on Jacob, coming near to us in love. And our reaction is either to cry out, Uncle, mercy, and be saved, or to kick against Him in defiance. But if you refuse to repent and believe, know that you are like the four-year-old wrestling with his father. You may think you're evenly matched. You may even think that you're able to win. But the omnipotent God who crippled Jacob with just a touch is no match for any of us. Instead of fighting against faith, give in to grace and receive mercy. Come to Jesus and be saved. Come to Jesus and find rest. Come to Jesus And find forgiveness. And you, believer, remember that like Jacob, you too have been given a new name. You are now Christian. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. He has caused us to be born again to a new and living hope. And so may we go by faith, living according to our new name, our new identity, and our new life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we marvel at you who save us and transform us. We look back at Jacob's life and we were wowed at what you've done. And Lord, we look back at our own lives and we're amazed at where you have taken us. No longer, Lord, do we want to be four-year-olds wrestling, thinking that somehow we can win. Humble us, Lord, to see you in your glory, that you are holy and above all, that we would humble ourselves and submit to you in faith, and that we would walk in that humility, that we would walk in that knowledge of who you are, that we would submit our lives to you, that we would know the glory of your holiness and the glory of your grace. 
Lord, overcome us with those things that we may see your beauty. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.